Hello and welcome back to our daily devotional podcast. Today we continue with Paul's journey through Macedonia and he is now going to Berea. Berea is an interesting place as we shall see because the way that the Bereans received the word of God and the way the mobs also disrupted this is very instructive to us. So let's look at Acts chapter 17 uh, verse 10 to 15. Acts chapter 17, verse 10 to 15. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the news in Thessalonica learned that Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, let us understand your truths, that with diligence as your children, as your followers, believers of Jesus Christ, we may search the scriptures as the Bereans have. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The thing that was special about the Bereans that that stood them out from the other cities that Paul had preached in was that it says they were of a noble character. They received the word with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So what they did was they received the word, they listened to Paul's perspective. It was very different from the perspective that they had. They were just largely, they were Jews steeped in Jewish teaching and to take then the word of Paul who was preaching gospel of grace of Jesus as God who had died for us and had forgiven our sins that was very very radical and yet the Bereans took what Paul said and then they went to the scriptures they examined the scriptures and they asked themselves is what Paul's saying true or not and in so doing they came to faith But we contrast it with the other group, the group from Thessalonica, who then came down and stirred up another mob. These were people who unthinkingly bought what was said by the mob in Thessalonica, from Thessalonica. And I believe that many of them then turned against Paul and drove him away. And so we need to contrast the two. The group that took the word examine the scriptures and the group that just listened to one one set of lies and dismissed or one set of ideas and dismissed Paul altogether and then we realize how important it is then to study the word of God to find out exactly what our stand ought to be unfortunately I think we tend a lot more as Christians today we tend a lot more to the latter group 
because we do not spend a very, very much time studying the Word of God for issues that really matter. It's not because we don't have time. We often say we're too busy. And yet, for many of us, our small groups, we meet once a month. And more often, we meet every fortnight. And some even meet every week to discuss matters, to study the Bible. And yet, on matters that are controversial, perhaps, on matters that are serious, perhaps we don't feel it's we are in that league to do that study, and therefore we feel inadequate, we don't know where to start with the Bible. Or perhaps we find that it is fear that it is too emotional, and don't want to stir up the emotions of a small group such that we end up splitting or we become enemies. And so we skirt the issues that really matter. For example, prosperity gospel, or the issue of extreme grace. We hear of Joseph, Prince, and then we quickly find support that he is wrong, unless you come from new creation, of course, in which case you would stand very clear that he is right. But we really don't sit down and look at scripture. We often would say, oh, but my pastor says it's wrong, or my favorite preacher says it's wrong. But the other side, the people from New Creation would say that they are perfectly right. Have we ever sat down, opened the Bible and examined the scriptures to see where this stands? And then there is the Israel-Palestine issue. Should we or should we not support Israel? And to what extent do we support Israel in the fight, even in injustices? Or do we support them in a different way to admonish, to pray, to pray for repentance? Do we then do our research? Or the very, very hot topic, the LGBTQ topic, which, let me remind you, is very different from the 377A topic. We often lump them together, and so we say, well, if uh, homosexuality is sin, then we are on the side of maintaining 377A. And I say there's no correlation at all. Let's just, let me give you an example. The Bible clearly says that idolatry is sin. Do we then, do we then say criminalize Hinduism and Buddhism and everything else that's going against Christianity? We don't, because they're treated separately. One may be considered sin in our faith, but in order to maintain religious harmony, so we so we say, then we would still want to harmonize with Hindus and Buddhists, even though the Bible says idolatry is sin. But then why don't we do that with homosexuals too? If the Bible says that homosexuals are sin homosexual act is sinful, do we then immediately ask for a law that criminalizes homosexuality? And if we say they're different, then we have to ask ourselves what is different about it. The reality is this that we need to talk about these issues in a careful, loving way. My guiding principle is what James says in chapter 1, verse 19. James chapter 1, verse 19 says, Let each of you be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. I'm afraid that most of us, many of us, become very emotional when we touch these so-called controversial issues. Do they really need to be controversial? Can we not speak the truth in love and examine the scriptures, examine, listen to each other, listen to other opinions, and then come to our conclusion that we may not agree, but at least we know where each other's stand is. 
I remember several years ago, our then-president Gordon Wong, our bishop now, invited Reverend Miak, who was the senior pastor of a free community church, the only church in Singapore that was gay-affirming. And he invited him to speak to pastors, not to the congregations, but just to the pastors to give us an understanding of how they viewed homosexuality, what they went through in discrimination, what they, the, the members went through through their youth and childhood, just to give us an idea of what a homosexual Christian was like. It was held in such a secret meeting and yet word leaked out. And when word leaked out to the laity, there was a huge uproar that resulted in people calling our president liberal and using terms that were not great. In fact, these days, we, we use terms to label each other without even understanding the issues well. We say that we one side is um, betraying the cause of Christ. We say that we should make a stand for Jesus Christ, that we are compromising our standards. And then when we ask, when I ask, what standards? Where is your source? Where is the source of what you stand for? What is the reason for what you stand for? Often we don't have it. Whichever side we are on, we often don't have clear answer as to why we make a stand. I remember we had this wear white campaign, right? When when the pink pink dot was at its height. And so I asked, so why, why are we making a campaign to wear white? What statement are we trying to make? And they said, well, homosexuality is sin. But my question then is, yeah, okay, homosexuality is sin. Does it mean that you behave like that? I mean, why, why, why do you counter um, a grouping of homosexuals who want to claim to ask for their rights? Why do you counter that by wearing white? I mean, what, are, what statement are you making? Is that a godly statement? Is that a loving statement? Is that a Christian statement? And we don't think because we say, oh, yeah, but our leaders say so, our church leaders say so, or so-and-so of this evangelical church say so, and therefore we follow. But that would be really disastrous. Because unless we take time to study the Word of God, to listen, to look at evidence, and then draw our conclusions, the stands that we make often in a very vocal Christian stand may be on very weak ground. And let's not say that we don't have time to do it. Because as I said, well, we do a Bible study over a lot of things. But why don't we take time to look at some of these difficult issues? I could help if you need to. Need, need to. But it's really not so difficult. So let's take LGBT, for example. How do you start? Well, first of all, you need to take several sessions, not just one session and finish with it. you never finish it in one session. But even in homosexuality, there are different issues altogether. The first issue would be, is it sin or is it not sin? And that's for one set of Bible studies, several weeks. Separate from this then is, if it is sin or if it is not sin, what is the Christian stance to it? What is the church's stance to it? It's a very different question from whether it's sin or not, because how the church or how Christ looks at sinners is an important issue. And then third, even if Christ looks at it in a certain way, what about the nation? Should the laws 
be made different. And that's a different issue altogether, as I mentioned just now, that 377A may be related to homosexuality, and yet there's very little to do with whether homosexuality is right or not, because it, it takes in a totally different set of values, totally different set of principles. And so we have to separate these issues altogether. And then we look at the first one. Is homosexuality sin? So what we do is we take out all the issues, right? We pick up, you can, uh, you can Google this. I usually don't Google for opinions. I Google for Bible passages, and that usually is quite accurate. And so I Google something like passages about homosexuality. And then there's a whole list of it. From this list, then I have to sieve out what is really relevant and what is not. Because we might say, yeah, okay, um, God created Adam and Eve to procreate. And therefore, this is the basis of human relationship, a married relationship. And I agree, that's good. But sometimes then we go on to little slogans that were pithy at one time, and I used to think it was funny and good until I realized how offensive it is that God created Adam and Eve and did not create Adam and Steve. But what about, what then about sin in the world, not sin in a couple alone, but sin in the world that has distorted things. What of a person who cannot have sex? What of a person then who cannot procreate, as God says to Adam and Eve, go and multiply? But what if a person cannot multiply, cannot have children? Do we then say that it is wrong also? Well, it is far from the ideal for sure, but there are lots of people who are single in our midst. Does it mean then that they are substandard and second class? Certainly not. We value them, we treasure them. And so when we look at that, then we say, okay, what else are there prohibitions, strict prohibitions against homosexuality? So we come up with a list and then we have to ask ourselves which one is Old Testament, which one is New Testament. And eventually, has the New Testament superseded the Old Testament? How many in the Old Testament? How many in the New Testament? And the next question is, what other sins are bundled together of homosexuality? In Romans, for example, we have a bundle of them, gossip, slander, lying, uh, a whole list, disobedience to parents, a whole list of them that come together with homosexuality. So we lay them out before us. We look at the evidence is this sin or is this not sin? So if it's clear that it is sin, then we ask the next question. And we could actually delegate this work to various um, various people, each one to look at Old Testament, New Testament. What is the context of each of these prohibitions? Is it just a mention of previous sin? Is it a clear prohibition? Is it really clear or is it just inferred. For example, when it says that uh, two men should not lie together, what does that really mean? And so we, we try to understand the context of each of the prohibitions as much as we can. And then we come to a conclusion, yes, it is sin, no, it is not sin. The next question then is more difficult. How does Christ, the coming of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, make a difference to sin. What is grace? 
Now we all assume that we there is a common understanding of grace. Actually, grace uh, is one of the most difficult issues to understand and to agree on. We have a very wide spectrum. On the one side of the spectrum is Joseph Prince and his extreme grace, that we are forgiven part our sins are forgiven past, present, and future, and that even if we lived in sin, we are still God's beloved. That's one extreme. The other extreme is actually a denial, complete denial of grace altogether. We talk about grace and then after that the whole law comes in. Uh, we look at the, whole, the Old Testament and how the Old Testament controls our lives and we continue to be controlled by the Old Testament. That's the other extreme. And then of course there are the middle grounds that sin, that there is grace, that God loves us, but we need to repent and receive the grace of God. So repentance means change. But even along that line, there are different, different uh, degrees in the spectrum. What happens when after we've repented, we continue to sin and sin and sin? What happens then to repeated habitual sins that we cannot get rid of? Try as we might, repent as we might. How much time does God give us? How, do, how does the church embrace a habitual sinner? And of course, we ask that question, what if people hide it, right? Um, I'm a habitual sinner in certain things, but nobody's going to know. So does that make me clean before a congregation? It doesn't. But the reality is that even in the concept of grace, there's a huge spectrum and all of us lie along the two extremes. But for many of us, we don't even lie along the extreme. We actually don't know. We muddle through and we say, yeah, grace. And then we apply grace differently in different um, circumstances. So now we have looked at what grace is and we try to understand what grace really is. Does God love a sinner? How does God love a sinner? At which point does he require perfection? And at which point does he journey with man or woman who's struggling with his sin, whatever that sin is, until God transforms our hearts altogether? What do we do with sinners in the meantime? How do we treat them, seeing that all of us have sinned? And then we also look at parallels, right? Parallels with sin of homosexuality, we might say, well, one might be divorced. God prohibited divorce too. And then later on, he said, because of the hardness of heart. The hardness of heart has nothing to do with real, uh, the person, the husband's hardness. It has to do with the human condition that we are hardened people. But because of the hardness of all our hearts, God had to make an exception and say that, well, actually divorce is wrong. But well, because of hardness of hearts, Moses allowed divorce. And these days we also allow divorce and remarriage in many of our churches. And so we got to ask, are divorcees then second class citizens? Or actually they're not. We embrace them even more. We love them even more because we know the difficult circumstances they've gone through. But what about divorce and remarriage then? Is there a parallel as well? How do we add that and how do we compare our stance with divorces and remarriages with homosexuality and even homosexual marriage? I'm not saying that it's right, 
just asking that question, but we got to to research that one and ask ourselves too. Why do we say that divorce and remarriage, a person who is divorced and remarried can be embraced into the church, but not a homosexual married couple? Well, that's a very difficult question and I'm not going to give you an answer. But it's something you need to ask yourselves and check the Bible. And The Bible is largely silent about that. But it has to do with grace, it has to do with the human condition of sin and what we have done with parallel sins. But what is very important actually, next thing is listening to stories. Listening to stories is important. Oh, before that, then then we can listen to, we can read books by experts, but let's not just read one side. We need to read arguments from both sides, the pro and the cons. And I tell you that is very difficult. I remember once when um, a Christian scholar wrote about uh, Joseph Prince's theology. And my first question was, is he for or against Joseph Prince? Because if he's for Joseph Prince, I'm not going any further. If he's against, yes, then let me read some more. But you see the prejudice? That even before listening, we already made up our minds and we, we read the things that support our view. That is so... Um, so bad for our impoverishing for us, really. But that's often what we do. And so eventually when this person whom I respected so much said there were very strong and good points about Joseph Prince, I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't continue reading this anymore. But why not? Why shouldn't I be listening to both sides and then looking at the Bible and examining things from the experts of both sides? And so I got to listen, I got to read a book that is very against homosexuality, both as a sin as well as how the church treats them and how the nation treats them. And I also got to read books from the other side, what it means, what what they interpret the Bible to mean. I want to try to understand it from both sides. And then there is the medical evidence, because that is important. Is homosexuality really a choice? Or is it a brokenness? Or is it worse, deeply, something that is genetic and inherited? Because if it is genetic and inherited, and it's not the fault of the person, but it is, well, we could call it um, general sin, right? It's the sinful nature of humanity, the fall, the product of the fall. Okay, if we accept that homosexuality is the result of the fall, and the person was born a homosexual or born with same-sex attraction, then the question is, what do we expect that person to do? To be celibate for the rest of his life? And what if he does not have the gift of celibacy? Do we have a right to insist that they be celibate the rest of their lives to be a Christian? But we need then to understand science, listen to science. And most important then, we need to listen to their stories, both sides. There is the story of those born with SSA or same-sex attraction who then eventually overcame it and had normal lives or so-called heterosexual lives or some became celibate and held on. But we also need to listen to the struggles of those who did not manage to cross over. The ones who tried, who went for inner healing, the ones who repented, who pleaded with God and yet could not find God removing same-sex attraction. 
the struggles they have with guilt, the struggles they have in church. We need to read their stories and understand their plight. And sometimes the most important is to look at the parents. How do the parents feel about their beloved children? Because actually they are a reflection also of how God looks at his beloved children. Now, sadly, a lot of parents start with denial. Actually, I can, most, many of us can, or at least I can, and I know my daughter can too, recognize a gay person from a mile away long before they come out into the open. The way they dress, the way they walk, both men and women, the way they behave, the way they talk, we actually, it's not difficult to recognize a person who has gay tendencies. The parents find it hard and it breaks their hearts when finally the child comes out of the closet, so to speak. And by then there is a struggle. My beloved child, what do I do with the beloved child? Do I support the child? And especially when my child is not, does not have the gift of celibacy. My child needs a relationship. She needs sexual, or he needs sexual connection. But the sexual partner that he or she chooses is of the same gender. What do I do as a parent? The agony that I feel. We need to listen to parents also. In fact, all this noise that's loud are usually from parents who don't have um, children who are gay or from people who have never had a problem with SSA. But stop and listen to the struggles of those who do and the loved ones and the loved ones of those who do. Perhaps we get a different understanding of what it is to be gay, what it is to have a child who is gay. And then we ask ourselves, what about God? God is a father. He loves his children passionately. What does he do when the children are broken or the children are born that way? Does he condemn them? Does he push them aside? Does he insist that they do things they are unable to? And perhaps then in ensuing debates, I mean, of course, you know that I sway one side. I've made it very clear that I sway towards real, genuine acceptance and love for the homosexuals. I still know that say that it is sin. I struggle very much with that commands, these commands. But hey, search it out for yourselves. Maybe you'll find a different answer. I don't know. But when it comes to how the father feels for, the heavenly father feels for his children, or how these children who long to be loved go through a difficult time, then perhaps our minds will be changed and we'll begin to see things differently. And then we deal with an issue like LGBT. We deal with an issue like uh, Joseph Prince's grace. And often we are so full of condemnation against prosperity gospel. question is, have we really understood what the teaching is all about? Or have we just heard, oh yeah, they teach prosperity gospel, so it's wrong? Maybe, maybe not. But we need to ask ourselves, have we read Joseph Prince's books? Have we debated among ourselves about what he says and about prosperity gospel and about extreme grace, ultra grace? And then search the scriptures. What I'm saying is that we need to spend time really searching the scriptures praying, listening to one another, listening to those on one side and those on the other. 
and to be slow to anger. Yes, some of the views may go so against ours that we, we just bristle and get so angry. And yet we must check that. Because unless we deal with these issues in a less emotional way, and more in a searching way, asking God for answers, praying intensely and earnestly for God to give us answers and understanding of the situation. We're not going to come to any kind of resolution. And I believe that our church is strong enough to do that. At the end of the day, if we disagreed with each other, at least we disagree knowing what the scriptures say, not just about that issue, but the scriptures say about the larger issue of grace, about acceptance, about church, about compassion, all of this. And we understand the issues that are at hand. When we do then, I think we'll be all the stronger for it, even if we disagree with one another. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you make us people who earnestly seek your wisdom, your guidance. We ask that you may make us people who are not afraid to be open to another view, to listen, to examine, to make judgments. We pray then that we will, then if we saw the other side as true, that we may also open up and embrace another side. Take away our fear, Lord. Take away our fear of uncomfortable issues. Take away our fear of coming together to deal with difficult issues and to learn to trust each other, to share from our hearts, to share from our understanding of your word, to dare to speak out even if others say we're wrong, but at the same time to dare to embrace another person even when the views are so different from ours. That, Lord, as we share lovingly with each other, as we examine your word lovingly with each other, as we listen lovingly to each other, Lord, we may become a stronger church, a stronger people who know your heart. Even when we don't know where your stand is in a certain issue, we know the hearts of those who oppose us. We ask then, give us courage, give us compassion, give us love, give us a love for the truth, that we may seek your truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well then, that's some big thing to think about, especially for small groups. I mean, really, if you want to do a study on the various issues that I've presented, whether it's prosperity gospel or ultra grace, LGBT or Israel-Palestinian conflict, well, do prepare yourselves, get the relevant books, search for books of different views, and come talk to me too if you wish to, and um, I'll guide you along. Of course, be aware that I will have my views, and you don't have to follow my views, but at least find a starting point. All right. Thank you. God bless you. Goodbye.